0: we're going to talk about Hindu worship and uh, so the um, most the simplest way to explain uh, what happened in India historically is that um, yajna or sacrifice as the central activity of uh you could say, of Vedic or Hindu religion, uh, shifted to puja, with this form of worship, as the central activity. And, uh, oh, cell phone. So one thing I want to explain is how uh, all the same, how should I put it, um, concepts, the basic spiritual and religious ideas in terms of what people believed they were doing and why they were doing it, all those things actually remained the same. But the external activity changed and uh, why it changed is also an interesting topic. So, anyway. So sacrifice, you all understand. Come on in. Still a few good seats left. So there's um, so two uh, basic things I want to talk about is, first of all, when people did sacrifice, when, fire sacrifice, where you... They actually had fire sticks called aranis. You take these fire sticks and you rub them together and you, and you light a fire. And the fire is a god, Agni. Agni, from which, of course, we have English words like ignite and so on. And so Agni is a god who appears in that fire. So when you offer certain authorized objects into the fire whether it's clarified butter, ghee or milk or other things, animal sacrifice whatever uh, the gods are accepting that offering through the fire The fire becomes a, uh, a representation, a manifestation of divine power on earth which receives the sacrifice whatever you offer to conveys it to higher beings you get credit, You it know, goes in your account and um, different kinds of rewards are given to you. This is the, the cycle where you're offering things back up to heaven and receiving things in return. So uh, one important thing about sacrifice, and of course the Vedas, the earliest literature of the Vedas, the Rig Veda and Rig means hymn. So the, the hymn Veda or hymn knowledge, the, book, the hymn book, the Rig Veda, those are hymns that are chanted at fire sacrifices. The chant, those, those hymns are chanted at fires. Those are the original campfire songs, you could say. Where people would sit around the Vedic fire and they would chant these hymns. And the Yajur Veda, the word Yajur is related to the word Yajna. It's the sacrificial formulas. How you do the sacrifice. Why you do the sacrifice. What can you expect from the sacrifice. So the Yajra Veda, that's what that is. And then, of course, the uh, Sama Veda is the musical part of it, how to chant the hymns. And, and so those are the three main Vedas. Then the Brahmana literature, the next stratum of literature talks about, again, the sacrifices. Same type of thing you find in the Yajra Veda, but elaborated more. What is the sacrifice all about? Why? How? When? And so on. And uh, then you get the Upanishads. Now, at the level of at the level of the original Vedas and the Brahmanas, it's pretty much karma. It's like, you know, offer your sacrifice and go to heaven. But then, uh, some people start to think, why are we doing this? And what is the value of going to heaven? And if you go to heaven and come back to earth again, what have you really gained? And ultimately, who am I? And, and uh, you know, and so on. And is there something higher, and what is life all about, and so on. So you get the Upanishads. So the Upanishads are still very much concerned with sacrifice, but they're concerned with knowledge of it. They're philosophizing about sacrifice. And you find this in the Bhagavad Gita, in chapter 4, where Krishna talks about uh, sacrifice as, as a philosophical principle, and which can be supplemented. For example, you can sacrifice... Bless you. You sacrifice... Uh, The sense objects, for example, when you eat. When you eat food, that's a sense object. You can offer that into the senses. The senses become the fire. And the physical objects that you see, that you eat, that you hear, or uh, smell, or touch, or whatever, become offerings into the fire of the senses. Or the senses themselves can be offered into the fire of the mind. And so, sacrifice becomes a principle, a philosophical principle of taking something in your life and offering it through a particular medium which can be physical fire or a symbolic fire offering it back to the source from which these things came for example if you're eating food uh, food uh, if it doesn't rain there's no water in the world right? I mean you can't I mean, if, it doesn't, if, it, if it really stopped raining permanently there'd be no water without water there's no food you couldn't eat so food is a gift you receive the food, you receive the rain, and then and then you offer it back. You can offer the food, the food itself, in a physical fire. You can eat the food and your, your uh, body becomes the fire into which you offer the food or the senses are offered into the mind, so on and so forth. But the principle is offering back. So at the level of the Upanishads, the sacrifices are principally not about karma, just getting a material reward. It's about jnana, knowledge. It's philosophizing about sacrifice and trying to understand your ultimate nature as a soul, the nature of the absolute truth of God, with sacrifice being sort of the the activity that you philosophize about. And as a soul, it's your natural activity to offer back. It's a form of self-realization to offer back because you are being yourself when you are offering back. And when we're not offering back, we're really alienated from our own true identity. So, and then ultimately, with sacrifice, the the sacrifice is finally understood as an act of devotion. It's not merely a cosmic exchange. You know, you give something, you get something. That's karma. Jnana means it tells us something about who we really are. And bhakti means that ultimately... The offering itself is an act of love because the ultimate source of rain and food and of our own existence is not merely a general philosophical principle such as Brahman. It's actually the gift of an infinite loving God whom we should love in return. So the ultimate offering, it's not just that, let's say, the gods, in the plural, small g, the god sent rain the food grew we take the food and we offer it back to the gods so it's not it's not just that we're receiving material things and offering back material things to keep the material things coming keep the cycle going but ultimately what we're receiving is not merely rain and food we're receiving love from god and we're receiving life we exist because of God's love. Because of God's love, God at every moment causes us to exist, and we offer back that love. That's the real sacrifice. So, uh, in the case of Yajna, it's all about a cycle receiving and offering, but for those who are concerned with their own physical bodies, and getting an even better, like, you know, the ultimate extreme makeover, is that you get good karma, and then in your next life it's the ultimate cosmetic surgery. You can actually kind of like custom design a beautiful new body on a higher planet <laughs> with all kinds of enjoyments. So that's karma where you, and the imamsa people, and the monster people, never our old friends imamsas who say, that's all there is. The gods are not really relevant. They're just the cosmic bureaucrats. It's really about uh, getting everything you want through sacrifice. That's what it's about. So that's karma. Jnana, the Upanishads, Vedanta, Uh, Sacrifice is really a cosmic principle and the real purpose of sacrifice is to understand ourselves in the absolute. It's to get knowledge, a philosophical understanding by studying the apparatus of sacrifice as a cosmic principle. And then, ultimately Bhakti, which says that sacrifice is ultimately an exchange, a loving exchange between the source of our existence and ourselves. And Vedanta begins that way, that, that Brahman is the source of everything. So that only sacrifice is a, a loving exchange between the individual soul and the supreme soul. Now, the point I wanted to make is that when people basically stop doing so many yajnas they, yajnas, they still do. I mean, people still do fire sacrifices, but it's not the central activity. Now, puja is. But even in this puja, you find the same thing. It's just another way of doing sacrifice. And by puja, I mean, a typical Indian mandir or temple, uh, well, you know, it's obviously a building. And because India is, uh, most of India is tropical, has a warm climate, therefore typically there will be a, a, um, I should put it, a courtyard. They're like, you know, like four walls with, with an open, open air courtyard. And then uh, in the back, there is what is what they call in the book Garbha Gurtha, the, uh, the deity room where there will be an altar, which is like a platform and doors in front of the platform. The deities, the icons are on the platform and then they'll open the doors and people will get darshan. They'll see the deity. Remember, darshan is also the name of the different philosophical systems, different theological systems. So just as some people wanted to see through philosophy or the original Vedas were were claimed to, to have been seen by the sages. The sages saw this knowledge and then gave it to us. Then you have philosophy about seeing and ultimately in puja you actually see a form of, of the deity. Either it's, it's god or a, a demigod or whatever. Which is also called darshan. But in any case, this puja, which I'm going to talk about more uh, as time permits, you find some people who are just totally into the karma aspect who are called karmis. Karmis. And the karmis are people who See puja as just the way to do sacrifice. You offer something. You come into a temple. You, know, you give a rupee, or you know, like chucking a buck for luck. It's like you. <laughs> they have to have a box usually in front of the deity, and you put some money in there, and you say your prayer, and it's a deal because you give a few rupees, maybe you'll get you know a thousand times back in terms of all your wishes fulfilled. So it, it's really I mean, it, it's it's the best return on your investment. Especially nowadays, considering the situation in the stock market. So, but, but karma, that's really what it is. It's really kind of a pious form of business. And you can see this every Sunday in America on television, too. Where you pray for certain things. And, and so this interaction, this relationship with the divine is a way of asking for things and getting them. You offer something in return. It's like sacrifice Yajna, but now it's puja. And jnana. then you have people who philosophize about the puja. And, and they have all kinds of theories, theological theories about what is the deity and how is the deity present in that form. And so it becomes, and so by philosophizing about the puja, that's your path. But ultimately, ultimately what puja, the way it's understood, even by the people, that say, who are down in the karma level, it's just like a business, but everyone kind of understands, for the most part, there's a general consensus in Hinduism, which is mentioned in the book, that uh, it's about devotion. You really go to a temple, to a mandir, to offer your devotion. In fact, uh, Professor Rodriguez says that it's considered to be poor taste to ask favors for the deity, but that doesn't stop many people. They do it anyway. and that's, that's, that's one of the questions. You know, why do people do it if it's in poor taste? It's like, for, I, I mean, I'll give you an example that uh, if you go to someone's house, if you go to someone's house as a guest, let's say some person that you respect, and you walk in the door and say, Hi, uh, do you have any money you don't need? Or, or, you know, no one's using that room over there. Could I sleep there? Or, you have an extra car in your garage. So, so the idea about puja is, that, well, let me just go through some points from the book. and then. Uh, but that, the first thing I want to say is that the main shift between, let's say, the old Vedic culture and classical Hinduism is from Yagi to Puja, but these same elements are there, karma down and Bhakti. The same elements are there. Well, why did they shift like this? This is a point I wanted to make actually months ago and kept forgetting to, to explain it to you. So, and that is that um, if you for the moment, let's say, let's just hypothetically go with the ancient theory of ages. The yugas in Sanskrit. You find this in the Vedic culture, you find it in the Greek culture in Homer and Hesiod, the two great writers of ancient Greece. You find it in other literatures in the world. The idea that life is actually degrading, the world is devolving, uh, contrary to the notion that Things have always been progressing. I mean, even even back in European history, the Renaissance, the Renaissance was a rebirth, according to Renaissance people, of a higher culture which had collapsed into a dark age, dark ages, they called the Middle Ages, the middle between two higher periods. And so there was a notion that culture doesn't always progress. Sometimes it collapses. And you find this idea in the Vedic and also in ancient European literature that things used to be better. Things actually used to be better. So let's just for the moment hypothetically try that on and, and, and see what conclusions would come from it. For one thing, if it were true, if it were the case, then as the earth falls lower and lower, people need more and more facility to connect with the divine. Because the whole purpose of all these processes, yajna or puja, is yoga, is to connect to divine power. Here we are on the earth, mortal human beings, we're very small, and we have to connect ourselves to something much greater, something absolute, something even eternal. So that's what yoga is about. All the t- And so, yajna was yoga. It was a way of connecting through the offering, connecting to higher power, divine reality. And the same thing for puja. So, if people were, let's say, more spiritually or religiously advanced in an ancient age, long forgotten, then you could say they would not need visible icons. They could... In fact, you have all these stories in the Puranas, these ancient stories, of people doing fire sacrifices and deities actually appearing. From the fire, deities actually appearing. Very ancient stories. And... uh, So let's say that was going on, then it stopped at a certain point, we went to a new yuga and uh, people have fallen, as it's stated in these ancient literatures. And so therefore you actually need a visible icon. You need an icon because the deities don't appear anymore, interplanetary travel has declined. It's just like let's say in the modern world, let's say people used to go to Beirut for tourism. It, It is not really like a top tourist destination lately. And uh, there, there was a time when Beirut was called the Paris of the Middle East. It was a very, very popular... Havana used to be a great tourist destination. And so when the Civil War broke out in Lebanon and it became a really problematic place, the tourism basically went to zero. And the same thing with Havana. So, I mean, the idea is that when conditions on the earth become very gnarly, that uh, higher beings start stop coming. Anyway, this is the ancient picture of it. This is how they would see it. So that there's a need for puja. There's a need to actually carve or uh, cast you know, bronze or, or wood images or marble carved marble images of the deity precisely because people have become more degraded and no longer can personally have encounters with higher beings. And I wanted to mention this also in relation to literature. Because if you look at let's say, the oldest literature, the Rig Veda. And what you'll read in every textbook is that it it sort of talks around or about or hints at things like reincarnation, but it's only later we get more explicit doctrines of karma. So one way to look at it is, the modern, let's say, academic way to look at that would be that people hadn't figured these things out. Everything evolves. And so, with time, people develop new ideas and you see these new ideas reflected in later literature. The ancient way of looking at this would be very different. They would say it's exactly the opposite. It's that people formerly were more enlightened and therefore required much less information. For example, let's say you want a bridge built across a river. And you're talking to a very sophisticated engineering corporation. And so basically, all you have to say is, you could probably express what you want uh, in maybe a few sentences. I want a bridge over this river to carry so much tonnage, so many lanes, and whatever. And you could probably, like in one little paragraph, tell them what you want, and that's all they need to know. Now, if you're talking to someone that has no idea about how to build a bridge, you would literally have to give that person a library of books on engineering. The amount of infor- so the amount of information that you give someone increases proportionately with the ignorance of the person, and the more the person is enlightened, or about any subject, whether it's bridge building or Brahman, the less information they need. So therefore, from the from within the ancient, from within this Vedic culture, they would say the opposite of modern scholarship. They would say that previously, let's say in the previous yuga, Dwapara yuga, people were actually more intelligent, more advanced, more enlightened, and needed very little information. And as time went on, people needed more and more and more information, and therefore it was given to them. So it's a very different picture. It's actually a very different picture. And, uh... I'm not saying one or the other is true, but it's not obvious to me that the academic version is true and the ancient one is false. I'm not claiming the opposite either. I'm just saying it's not obvious that one or the other is the correct one. And I think it would be misleading and pretentious for anyone uh, to stand up in front of you and say that it's obviously the academic view which is the correct one. Because it's not obvious, we just don't know from the academic perspective. Now, if you have a particular spiritual insight, or you feel you have a spiritual insight, that's something else. But from a purely objective academic standpoint, you really can't say which picture is the true one. And instead therefore I want to give them both equal time and attention. Yes? I have a question about Murti and uh, images and stuff. Murti, just for those who uh, don't know, Murti is a common Sanskrit word which means a form, and it's, it means that the... The deity form, the icon in the temple, is often called a Morsi. So you're proposing that uh, just say these stories about uh, these divinities personally coming through sacrifices, um, and because people don't have the level of involvement or advancement to invoke that to happen, so then they carve they carve things out of stone, but then it seems like the, those deities are not personally coming anymore. Okay. we are carving out of Okay, stone. so very good. We'll talk about that. I'll throw away all my notes. No, but, but let's, let's talk about that. Because as we know, those of us who grew up in or have lived for some time, say, in, in a country which at least historically developed as a Protestant country, Uh, there is a tremendous hostility toward visible, physical images of divinity. In fact, if you study the history of the Protestant Reformation in Europe, you'll find that in the lowlands, like uh, Holland and Belgium, there were these violent uh, uprisings, which uh, scholars call the iconoclastic furies. Any of you know what the iconoclastic furies figure it out. Well what happened is <laughs> that uh, <laughs> in, in Holland and Belgium, when they start when they, they drifted or, or raced toward Protestant convictions, they then had the insight that the Catholic churches with their stained glass windows, and statues of the Virgin Mary or Jesus were actually engaged in the worst kind of blasphemy. Uh, this is, if you know history, the Wahhabi revolution among the Muslims where they desecrated every visible image and things like that, even desecrated the, the shrine, the birthplace of Muhammad because any worship or any, any glorification of anyone but God is somehow blasphemy. blasphemy. So anyway, the iconoclastic furies in Holland and Belgium, which are now very liberal countries, so they they went into Catholic churches, uh, gangs and and mobs, and just started smashing and breaking everything. Smashing every statue, breaking all the stained glass windows. They call it the iconoclastic furies. So, uh, what I would suggest is that this uh, hostility toward visible in the course of the Ten Commandments, no graven images. So, What this comes down to is ontology. In other words, well, how should I say it? I think that the reason in India uh, these visible images were accepted is not because they were primitive, but because actually they were philosophically more sophisticated than the Middle East. And uh, I know that's a... uh, Maybe a provocative thing to say, but I, I think it's true. On philosophical grounds, not on religious grounds, on philosophical grounds. And I'll explain to you what I mean. If you look at ancient Middle Eastern culture, you don't really see a systematic ontological inquiry. There's all kinds of wisdom, but there's just it's just not there. This is something which we learn from Jewish scholars of Judaism. There, that In terms of systematic philosophy and ontology, whereas... Uh, In South Asia, and actually in ancient Greece, and ancient Europe, you did find this. Because so when you talk about a a, a graven image, or when you talk about a physical thing, whether it's made of marble or wood, or cast in some metal like bronze or iron or gold or whatever, it's a physical object. And so what it comes down to is, what is the status of matter? When you talk about matter, you know, physical or, or material energy, what is it, philosophically? What is its relationship to us as conscious beings? What is the relationship of one kind of existence, namely matter, to another kind of existence, namely let's say God? And so from the point of view... Well, there's one... uh, In Sanskrit it would be called Vrita, Vod. This is a position which in English would be uh, these two words are related. to dual. Dualism. Dualism is the idea that God and matter, or God and souls, are simply different. They're absolutely different. And this, this was taken to such an extreme in certain types of medieval theologies that certain people objected to saying that, that God exists. Because if we say we exist, we shouldn't say God exists because God and souls should not even share the same verb. Because there is such a huge gulf of separation between God and ourselves that it is somehow demeaning to God to imply any similarity or resemblance, although it said we're made in God's image. But anyway. So, So, the idea here is that if we are so different from God, there's a gulf of separation, moral and ontological, between ourselves and God, what to speak of God and matter, just dead, lousy matter. And so therefore the idea that something made of crude matter, like stone or bronze or whatever, could somehow be a vehicle of the divine struck some people as being the worst kind of blasphemy. And uh, this goes, of course, way back into Middle Eastern literatures, like the Bible. So, now, in India, in India, especially among the philosophers, the Vedanta tradition, there was the idea, first of all, consider the very first, well, the very first statement of Vedanta is that now we should try to understand Brahman, the Absolute the very first description of the absolute truth given in Vedanta is the absolute is the source of everything. So if the absolute is the source of everything, they also have a theory which you've read about many times in your uh, dedicated study of our textbooks, which is called Satkarya Vada. Vada is just kind of like ism. It literally means like a statement. It's sort of like advocating something. Advocating Satkarya. Karya Karya in Sanskrit means um, an effect effect, like cause and effect, and suck means existing. So existing effect, what this means is that a cause is present in the effect. The cause is actually present in the effect. And to give an example of this, take about, uh, uh, take as an example automobile insurance, right? Now there's an obvious example of this Vedanta principle. Because if there's an automobile accident, let's say a fender bender, we won't get gory here, let's say there's just like a little fender bender, and the insurance people come out, the whole idea is if you study the effect, the position of the cars, the skid marks on the road, uh, and all that, the type of damage to the vehicles, you can then figure out the cause of the accident. So the cause is still somehow existing in the effect. Or, for example, take medical research where you start with the disease. And the assumption is that the cause of the disease is present in the effect, which is the disease. So if you study people that have this disease, you can discover the cause of it, hopefully, because it's still there in the disease. Causes are present in effects. In fact, that's the whole assumption behind most kinds of analysis. Let's say you're a historian. Why did World War I begin? You start with the effect. World War I. You assume the cause is present in the effect and try to figure out what it was. So they also figured this out in ancient India. And now take this on the level of don't Take this on the level of the absolute truth producing everything. That means that God, the cause, is still present in the effect. This world. And therefore, if you study the things of this world, you can find the cause. Now, by the way, this idea also was very popular during the Renaissance and the Enlightenment period in Europe, you know, when when science started to pick up. Because, in fact, they used to say back then that God has actually given us two books. One book is the Bible. The second book is the book of nature. The book of nature. So that somehow if you study nature, you can understand God. Because the cause is present in the effect. Now, if you think about it, in in how many ways are causes, present, in effects, then, let's say you're carving a deity of Krishna or Shiva. Let's say you're carving a deity out of marble. So what is marble? Now, uh, Megan's not here. We always talk about that. But, um, Even modern physics would say, okay. Modern physics, and for that matter, uh, Nagarjuna would say, okay. You see it as as marble. Let's say it's white marble. But really, let's talk about it atomically. Let's talk about it subatomically. Let's talk about. But basically, what they're saying is, it's not just what you see there. So you could raise the question: ultimately, what is the marble? Ultimately, and even if you talk about it atomically, what are we talking about? We're talking about energy. What is energy ultimately? And so you can see that once you start to philosophize about, say, a piece of white marble, once you start to really think about it physically, in terms of physics, in terms of chemistry, in terms of philosophy, you start to really leave far behind that simplistic idea that this is white marble, this isn't God. This is blasphemy to say that white marble has any real serious connection to God. I mean, that idea that let's say a piece of white marble has no serious connection to God may seem obvious as long as you're not too philosophical about it, or even too scientific about it. Because science is leads you into philosophy also. Because you go so far with physics and then it's like, oh my God, you know, what is going on here? And so you end up in the realm of philosophy. So once you get very seriously philosophical about that piece of white marble, and once you take seriously the idea that causes are present in effects, then the notion that somehow God can appear in something which originally emanated from God and which is actually... And remember, for example, another important point here, the Veda Veda, which we all... talked about... Uh, Whoops, planning ahead. Beta means difference and a beta means non-difference. So what is the relationship between, say, Brahman or the Absolute or God and a piece of white marble which has been carved in a certain way? Well, they're different. Beta. But according to this, there's a sense in which they're not different. And because the white marble, after all, is just the power of God. It's just the energy of God. That's the whole Vedanta thing, that everything emanates from God. This is also, by the way, a popular theory in Neoplatonism. Uh, the great Jewish philosopher Philo in Alexandria, around the time of Jesus, Plotinus, and so on. So you'll find beta-beta theories in Greco-Roman philosophy as well. So once you get to this philosophical level... Uh, the idea that God can somehow be present in a physical object is not, whether you believe it's true or not, at least what you cannot say is that it's extremely naive and unphilosophical. In fact, I think it's almost the opposite. To deny a priori that like, it's ridiculous and blasphemous to even talk about a serious relationship between God and matter, I think is somewhat... To think it's obviously there's no there's obviously no connection is somewhat unphilosophical. But again, going back at the, at the level of puja, some people don't really worry about things like that. It's just like, hey, if I give a few rupees here, I can get something very valuable. But some people actually think about it. So. Um, one more thing I wanted to say. Any questions about that so far at these points? So you can see that even in Puja, the whole Vedanta tradition is still very much alive. Yes? Um, there were evidences of uh, deity worship in previous ages, like as early as the straight-up you uh, the... uh Evidence in what sense? I mean, like, it's been talked about in these texts that they worship. It's not like... If you... Yeah, but if you look at the text, uh, there are some references of some kind of adoration. It's not really that explicit. And you, we know that it was not a, a most prominent or central activity, the way sacrifice was. Yeah. Because for every reference in those texts, Puranas, Niti has every reference to some visible form, there's a hundred references to sacrifice. So sacrifice is basically what everybody was doing. And then one of the ages is designated as the age of worship of icon. Yeah, that's a whole different topic. (laughs) But thank you for bringing that up. Another point I wanted to make, actually, about this whole thing of puja. And that is there's an argument which comes from Paul of Tarsus. Paul of Tarsus, uh, as in St. Paul. Now Paul traveled around the Mediterranean world. He traveled around the Roman Empire. He had a Roman passport or whatever, and that, that's where he traveled. So uh, everywhere Paul went, most of the people he saw were worshiping icons. In fact, there was one letter. It, it, it was it was ubiquitous in the ancient world before uh, the rise of Christianity. In fact. There's a controversy, uh, someone wrote a letter to Paul saying that uh, there's a fight going on in one of the early communities that Paul founded because some people say that um, we shouldn't eat meat because, not on ethical grounds, but because all the meat that's available in the market has been offered to some little deity, someone's little deity. You can't buy non-offered meat because food was always offered to the deities. And we shouldn't offer meat, and we shouldn't eat meat offered to these false gods. Other people in the early community said, Well, there's no problem because gods don't exist. Those really aren't gods, they're just little physical things, and, and there are no gods. And so therefore there's no problem. Paul wrote back and said, Well, actually, the second group is right. There, there really are no gods there, they're just, you know, they're just dead little physical objects. And therefore, there's no harm in eating the meat, but we don't want to cause trouble in the community, so maybe you know we won't eat it if it bothers people too much. Now it's interesting. What's interesting, and then Paul gives an argument that obviously uh, these little this, these little figures could not represent divine power because people, uh, just like in India, actually back in the ancient world, just like in India, uh, they would build little shrines to their deities. They would offer food. They would they would dress them in clothes. And there were shops where you could go and just like in India, where you could go and buy little clothes for your deity and you know little articles paraphernalia for worship and so on in fact the owners of these shops used to really go nuts when Paul came to town because he would ruin their business because he kept preaching against this and he was cutting into their business so so they you know they were really against him so Paul said that look if this was really God God doesn't need your food doesn't God doesn't need your you to offer clothes God could feed himself and clothe himself and so on now a few things I would say to Paul I have the pleasure of speaking to him. First thing I would say to him is that, Paul, if God can feed himself and dress himself, guess what? He can also speak for himself. So you don't need to travel anymore. You don't need to travel around the Mediterranean and tell everybody the good news because God can speak for himself as much as he can feed himself. And so the idea at least from the Bhakti side is that people are, at least in terms of the devotional puja, people are offering these things uh, for their own purification. It's not that God needs the offering, it's that they need to offer it because they need to learn. It's like when I was a little kid and my parents, you know, my mother's birthday, my father gave me money to buy my mother a gift. And my father's birthday, my mother gave me money to buy my father a gift. And I was bought the same old thing. I mean, it was like no surprise. as a little kid. My father got a tie, my mother got some kind of bath oil or something for like five years straight. So, I mean, so obviously my parents didn't need it, but it, it was a question of cultivating that love between parents and children. It's like when you're in school, when you're a little kid in school, and you draw a picture and you take it home and give it to your parents. Your parents don't need the picture; it's not like a really big part of their art collection or something. But it's a question of developing a relationship. And so that was the idea behind puja in the devotional sense. It was a question of cultivating the relationship. Another thing I can't help throwing in is that actually there are statements in the Old Testament that there are many gods, but that the Jews should worship Yahweh. And the first commandment is not to have any other gods before me. It doesn't say there are no gods. It just says get them in the right order. (laughs) But anyway, that's another topic for another day. So... And and Old Testament scholars, very prominent Old Testament scholars uh, in academia acknowledge this, that there are references to various gods in the Old Testament, which Paul apparently missed. So, because he claimed to be following the Old Testament. And actually, in in our book, Professor Rodriguez says that bhakti, devotion, is more important than the item offered or the ritual matters. It's not about offering the, the flower or the water, or the food, or the fire, or the incense, or whatever. It's The real point, ultimately, is the exchange of devotion. And when people come in front of the deities, especially the devotional, devotional part of Hinduism, if they come before a deity of Krishna, or Lakshmi Narayan, or Radha Krishna, or, or Shiva, or whatever, they really feel the presence. They really they really feel, and will report, that, that, that they're in the presence of the divine. And there is a... Well, as the professor says, actually, the so I can, where did I write that? Um, Putin is grounded, this is page uh, 227, Putin is grounded in, in achieving an intimate interaction with divinity. An intimate interaction. And the basic worship is like receiving a guest. You know, you, you invite the guest, you welcome the guest, offer the guest different articles, and then you, you don't They always always say dismiss. Somehow, scholars, they're like stuck on this word dismiss. It's not so much you dismiss the idiot. It's like, you know, you say goodbye. A guest comes and at a certain point you kind of say goodbye. You're not dismissing your guest. You just say goodbye. Anyway, there's another important point I wanted to mention. And that is that in the devotional part of Hinduism, it was understood that the reason you go to a temple and have this intimate darshan, this intimate encounter with God is so that when you walk out of the mandir, when you go out of the temple, you will remain in God consciousness. And if one worships God in the temple or goddess or some form of divinity, but does not respect other creatures, then uh, that is considered to be not spiritual. In other words, Every living body, every living body, human or otherwise, ultimately is considered to be a temple, a mandir, because of the idea, as explained in the Gita, that God is present in the heart of every creature. God is in every every living thing. Therefore, uh, if one worships God in the temple but not in the heart of every living thing, it's considered that one didn't really get it. And so I was going to read you just two quick uh, verses here from the Bhagavad Purana. I'll just read the Sanskrit and then then just translate it for you. I forgot to right the English. Which means literally that, um, and this is Krishna or God speaking, that I am not satisfied even when I am worshipped with all kinds of opulent paraphernalia. You can worship me with all kinds of offerings, but I'm not satisfied if the person offering it does... if the person offering it disrespects other living creatures. In other words, you can't just be nice to your parents and and, and go, you know, know, punch your little kid brother or sister in the stomach and think your parents are going to like it because you're nice to them. So the idea is that here Krishna in the Bhagavad-Purana... We have a case of Krishna saying that even if, you, even if someone worships me with all kinds of paraphernalia, if that person disrespects other living things, I'm not satisfied by the worship. And another similar statement, if someone undertakes to worship the Lord only in the form of the deity in the temple, there's a tendency toward this actually, and does not worship that same Lord in the bodies, within all creatures, then that devotee is said to be on the material platform. In other words, it's, it's not a spiritual life. If one simply does temple worship and doesn't recognize and honor, because puja also means honor, recognize and honor that same deity in every living thing, then the worship, then that person ultimately is on the material level. It's not actually a spiritual life. So the purpose of the whoops it's the end of the fourth quarter. So any questions? One thing I wanted to say is that uh, the class actually meets Monday, Wednesday and Friday and uh, So we do have class on Friday. So thank you very much.